good morning church. It is again a pleasure to stand before you and open the word of God and attempt to uh, exposit the word of God to God's people. This is a, a, a joy and a thrill at the same time. It's an overwhelming um, um, it's an overwhelming thing to, to do this and uh, as always I appreciate the prayers that are offered up on my behalf and uh, we'll, we'll continue in that spirit of prayer as we work through the uh, the book of Daniel this morning. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 today. Uh, you'll remember last week, John looked at the first 19 verses of this chapter. And we saw uh, in those 19 verses Daniel's prayer of intercession on behalf of his people. And the historical context of that, of course, is the, the first year of Darius, the, the son of Ahasuerus. And we, we remember that uh, the, the Medes... Uh, came in as the as the Babylonians were overthrown, and Nebuchadnezzar and uh, his probably grandson or uh, somewhere down the line descendant in, in Belshazzar was was ousted in the midst of a of a great feast. We remember all that historical information from earlier in the uh, in the chapter. Uh, sorry, earlier in the in the book. In today's chapter, we're going to start getting back into some of the apocalyptic um, aspects of Daniel and some of the prophetic writing that is sometimes difficult to deal with, but we'll do our best today. We know that at this point in the, in the story, um, Daniel is reading from the prophet Jeremiah, and he's, he's recounting the fact that, um, that Jeremiah had prophesied 70 years of exile for his people, and this 70 years was coming uh, close to an end, and Daniel was praying um, in light of the, the prophecies of Jeremiah and, and praying for God's decreed will to be done. Um, he was praying and, and, and offering um, repentance. We'll see that in verse 20 here in just a bit. Um, but he's also um, calling upon the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God that was just as sure and certain as the wrath of God. And that's going to be an important theme for us to acknowledge as we work through this text this morning. Now, just a quick explanation. I'm going to actually be reading this morning from the King James Version. So a lot of us, I think, probably have the English Standard Version or the, the NASB, um, two very fine translations. And I typically prefer translations that utilize the, uh, the, the most up-to-date uh, collection of manuscripts that we have. Um, so in that, uh, on that basis, I'm usually going to be using the ESV or the NASB. But for, for whatever reason, the translation of Daniel 9 in these, modern, uh, in these modern versions tends to have some unnecessary confusion, at least in my estimation. So I, I really appreciate the, the directness and the succinctness of the King James Version in interpreting particularly the end of this passage uh, that we're going to read today. So um, if, you, if, you have a, if you have a smartphone with a Bible app and you can run there to, to pull up a King James Version, there's, there's probably a handful of us that have King James or New King James anyway, but that, that'll keep you in sync with, with what I'm reading from today. Again, this is nothing against the, the modern versions, and, and I'm, I, don't, uh, uh, I don't have any problem with the modern versions, obviously, and, and I'm, I'm not anti-King James in the other cases. It's, it's just... Uh, uh, as, a, as a principle of Bible study, we should all be utilizing the various translations that we have, um, as well as any other online interlinears or, or any other language resources we have to try to get the, the, the most clear, most direct um, rendering of the ancient languages into our language of English today. 
So this is, this is why we're going to go with the, the King James this morning. I'd like to read uh, the, the section uh, of Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. We're going to go through 27. Um, next week, we'll actually finish up verses 25 through 27. But for this week, we're going to focus on verses 20 through 24. So for now, though, let's, let's go ahead and read this whole chunk to try to get it all in our mind at once. Here's Daniel 9, beginning in verse 20. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the command came forth, and I come to show thee. For thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now therefore, uh, sorry, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are decreed, or determined. Verse 27, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Let us pray this morning. Our Father, as we approach this text, uh, there are so many questions that fill our minds. There are so many uh, difficulties, even in rendering this into English for our understanding, Lord. We pray for a spirit of clarity this morning. We pray that our minds and our hearts will be guided by you as we consider what you have communicated through your prophet, as we consider the context, as we consider uh, the purpose of the writing Lord, and as we consider how it applies to us uh, all these years later, God, we, we ask for your leading, for your guidance. Father, I ask that you remove me from the equation. Please don't allow any, any error on my part or any, uh, any stumbling on my part to cause confusion to your people. But Lord, give us a, a direct uh, understanding of what you've communicated so beautifully in your, in your text. We ask that you be with us for your glory today. And this is in Christ's name. Amen. So, as I said, we're going to consider verses 20 through 24 today, and we're going to break verses 20 through 24 into two parts. The first part that I'd like for us to look at and think about is verses 20 through 23. Verses 20 through 23. We see in verse 20 that Daniel, at this moment, is still interceding for his people. He's still confessing his own sin as well as the sins of the nation of Israel. And I think it probably wouldn't be a bad idea at this point just to note the difference between confession and repentance. We see in verse 20 that while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. 
So Daniel is confessing to God his own sin, but he's also confessing the sin of his people. And while it's really easy to conflate these ideas of confession with repentance, I think it's important for us to note the differences between the two. First of all, confession involves merely a recognition of guilt, okay, just an acknowledgement of guilt. Where on the other hand, repentance would involve an actual change of heart that results in a reversal of one's intent. Okay, let me say that again. Confession is merely the acknowledgement of guilt, whereas repentance involves a changed heart that results in a reversal or a 180, if you will, of the intentions of your heart. And outward acts of penance, which a lot of times confession becomes that, don't always coincide with genuine repentance. We're told in Psalm 51 that God does not delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings, but rather in a broken and contrite heart. And along these lines, we, we can think of a, of a glaring example in Roman Catholic um, theology um, in which they confuse these categories of confession and repentance. In that system, when people are required to enter into confession with a priest and then perform the acts of penitence that he assigns as a way of absolving their sin, they're clearly missing the truth found in Psalm 51, that God is not interested in those outward acts. What he desires is a heart that is changed and and is redirected to desire his glory, his purposes, to require or, or to desire obedience to his law. Also, we can, we can look around today and see many times where people routinely confess um, to committing crimes or sins, but with no true intention of change. So again, we see the difference between repentance and confession. In our legal system, um, a plea deal that might exchange an admission of guilt for a reduced prison sentence is a good example of this. Uh, many times, these, these perpetrators agree to um, acknowledging their guilt only because it allows them a shorter time in prison and a shorter delay from the opportunity to go out and commit those same sins again, those same crimes again. Or maybe a little closer to home, when we discipline our children and and, and the child is under parental discipline over some act of disobedience, um, a lot of times it's really easy to get a child to admit their guilt because they know they have to do that to get to go play again, right? But... Uh, the, the difficult part of parenting is to try to get them to understand what genuine remorse for sin is. Um, this is why gospel parenting requires more than just discipline for the sake of making your child act right. It requires a discipline that is pointing them to Jesus Christ and helping them to see that their sin, their, obe- their disobedience, regardless of how big or small, is an, e- an affront to an eternally holy God. Right. So if any of you have figured out how to do that, I would love to talk with you after service today because I could use some, some pointers in this area. All of this is sort of a tangent to our text, but, but the point here is that true repentance results only from the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of man. And, and as we read that, uh, that Daniel is confessing on behalf of himself and his people, Make sure that we don't think that somehow that was genuine repentance on behalf of the people. Let's consider the prophet Ezekiel, for example. Ezekiel 36 uh, says, uh, as he's conveying the, the word of the Lord regarding repentance and forgiveness, 
says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here, the fact that genuine repentance necessitates a new heart and a new spirit means that corporate repentance, when it does occur, is always the byproduct of multiple changed hearts. We, we could say that there have been times of corporate repentance, but that was never affected by one person committing an act of confession. It's always the Holy Spirit working and changing the hearts of individuals that ultimately brings about corporate repentance. And this was Daniel's ultimate plea to God. He was acknowledging God's righteousness and acknowledging his righteous wrath upon the nation, while at the same time crying out to God to have mercy. And the way God applies mercy is by granting true repentance. And it's only through that true repentance that we ever experience the genuine mercy of God. Well, as we continue in the text, verse 21, we see that while Daniel was praying, Gabriel showed up. He arrived. And yes, this is the same Gabriel that carried the, the news of the Messiah to the Virgin Mary. He's the one that brought this news to Daniel. And we'll see, as we work through this text this week and next, we'll see the messianic implications of this vision. So it's almost like Daniel is the go-to angel to bring news of the Messiah. Uh, and that's, kind of, that's got to be an exciting job to have. Uh, in verse 22, we see that Gabriel told Daniel that he was there to impart understanding and insight. So the, the, the words, that the vision that Daniel was going to receive obviously was going to be troubling to him. It was going to be difficult to comprehend. But Gabriel was there that he may understand and have insight. And then in verse 23, Daniel learns that because he is greatly loved... Gabriel was dispatched as soon as he began praying. Notice the time frame reference there in verse 23. That, that, uh, let me back up to that and read that. Verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. Okay, now we're not going to make too much of this this morning, but I do want to note that the, uh, this reminds us, I think, that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We've heard that, that passage quoted again and again. But when a sinner is redeemed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, their prayers are very likely in keeping and in step with the decreed will of God. And in Daniel's case, that's exactly what we see. He was reading the prophet Jeremiah and praying in accordance with what he was reading from God's word. If you ever wonder why your prayers seem to not be answered, consider the fact that you're praying the wrong prayers. We know that if we are praying for anything that is the will of God, it will come. And we, we need no other illustration than Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed before the night of his crucifixion. Lord, if it be your will, may this cup pass from me. Touching his humanity, Jesus Christ was not excited about going to the cross. He knew the brutal torture that that was going to be. He knew the incredible weight that he would feel bearing the sins of the world. And he prayed, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me. But then notice how he ends the prayer. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. Submitting to the plan, the decree, the purpose of God is the way that our, prancer, our prayers are answered uh, in accordance with God's will all the time. So let us always be praying, even as Jesus taught in the model prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. That's exactly what we see from Daniel in this instance. Okay, that's part one. And you're thinking, great, this is going to be a short sermon, no problem. Well, part two is only one verse, but it's a lot bigger than part one. So let me ask you just to kind of buckle up and hang in there. Um, We're going to, I'll tell you right now, we're going to put off a lot of the controversial discussion of the 70 weeks of Daniel until next week. Um, There's a reason that I want to stop after verse 24 today. I want to let this, this first part of this section, verse 24, really just sort of um, just sit there in our minds and just examine what is it saying? What is it telling us about God in the way that he's dealing with uh, his people with these 490 years as we'll, as we'll discover today? So uh, verse 24, let's read together. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy. Now, with these, with these 70 weeks, there's a, there's a lot to unpack in this, and let's just start by defining some terms here. The word that we interpret in English to be weeks is actually the term shabuah, and shabuah technically means seven. Okay, the same word for the for seven uh, that, that would indicate indicate groups of seven is the is the term that they use for the word weeks, and this is why we so often translate this term shabuah as weeks. But if you're reading an NIV version today, you'll see that they actually list this as seventy sevens are decreed, okay, rather than seventy weeks, because th- this is not uh, this term is not limited to merely weeks of days. It could also be used to imply weeks of years or sevens, groups of seven years. Well, how do we know that we can say and when we can say that a week equals a year and a year equals a day and all of that? Well, we, we do have examples in Scripture that, that sort of open our eyes to this. Um, for example, uh, the 40 years that the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness were connected to the length of time that the Jewish spies spied out the promised land. Remember, that was 40 days, and the wandering of the children in the wilderness was 40 years. Now, lest you think I'm just connecting dots for the sake of connecting dots, let's look at Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. I'll give you a second to turn there. I want us to see these passages in Numbers and Ezekiel. Numbers chapter 14, verse 34, reads, According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. So God is connecting the fact that 40 days were decreed for the spies to examine the, the, the promised land, and then the punishment of the people for not following through with Joshua and Caleb as they, as they had said, hey, let's go take this land. Everyone else said, no, the giants are too big. Remember that? Remember that story from, from Bible school when we were younger? Right? They, they didn't want to go in. They didn't want to take the land. They were disobeying God in doing that. So God's punishment was 40 years in the wilderness in connection to the 40 days that they had spied out the land. Another example, maybe a little bit more obscure, is found in Ezekiel chapter 4. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 4. We're going to have an Old Testament Bible drill today. Ezekiel chapter 4. This is the scenario where Ezekiel is commanded to lay on his left side facing Israel and then again on his right side facing Judah for a set number of days, representing the years of judgment that would come upon the nation. In Ezekiel 4, we're going to begin reading in uh, verse 4 of chapter 4. 
We read, Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the burden of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Again, 40 days I assign you a day for each year. So there's at least a couple instances there, and there's more that we could go to that indicate this connection that God makes between a day and a year, particularly in judgment passages. And this is uh, similar to what we're looking at in, in the book of Daniel. Another thing that we need to consider as we try to wrestle with this 70 weeks that we're going to be talking about uh, this week and next, um, the, the sermon series won't take 70 weeks, um, although it, may, it maybe could. We'll, we'll do the 70 weeks in two weeks. But uh, the, another thing to consider is God's frequent use of the symbolic number seven. Okay, the number seven is used by God in many instances uh, in a very important symbolic way. And I want to give us four examples of this symbolic use of the number seven. And these examples really flow, taking us up to this understanding of 70 weeks. The first instance that we ever see in Scripture of the number seven being used in a symbolic fashion is where? Creation, yes. I wanted to see there are four people still awake. That is, that's excellent. Uh, yes, uh, in, in, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God created the world in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. This established from the very outset of creation a pattern of sevens. And these patterns of sevens, these weeks, um, they are confirmed by the consistent rotation of the earth. They account for the days, the weeks, the months, the seasons, and the years that we see again and again and again and again. So the number seven from the outset was very important in the way God organizes time. Okay? And because God has used that number to organize time, we think of seven as being a number of completeness. Uh, it's, it's the number of God. Um, compared to the number of man, we've heard uh, the mark of the beast, 666. That, that's the number of man. Well, that's one short of God. So that's indicating the, the inadequacy of man. His number is six. God's number is seven. It's fullness. It's completeness. Well, the, the second example that I want us to point to is resulting from this seven-day creation and this pattern of sevens that's established at creation. We, we also gain from that the Sabbath principle. The pattern of the seven rotations of the earth per week is punctuated in the fact that the seventh day of the week is sanctified as a day of rest. This was codified, of course, in the fourth commandment in uh, Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, on this side of, of Calvary, in the New Covenant, we have understood the Sabbath to be fulfilled in Christ. And, and we, we don't have the, the types of ceremonial laws that were associated with Sabbath keeping in the Old Testament. This is true, but I fear that sometimes we've lost the significance of the Sabbath in our modern culture. 
we fail to recognize the importance of what God was setting up and establishing in this principle of the Sabbath. Go with me here. The call of the gospel is primarily a call to rest in the completed work of Christ. So this idea of resting after six days of work is not just a pragmatic thing that we do to rejuvenate ourselves, to let ourselves rest up for the next week, uh, week of work. Uh, but there has within the, the Sabbath principle an element of our salvation. We're, we're given a picture of what it looks like to rest in the completed work of Christ, and that pattern is established in the Old Testament. Um, so many times I think we, we miss that because we, we do enjoy freedom from the legalistic sort of setting of the Old Testament. But at the same time, I think we lose the significance. God took the Sabbath very seriously. If you consider um, in, the, in the book of Numbers, um, chapter 15, we see that Sabbath breakers there are to be stoned because, again, to, to deny the Sabbath, to violate the principle of the Sabbath, was an attack on the plan of redemption that, that God had for, for his people. It was an attack on the reality that rest is to be found in the Messiah. So God took the Sabbath very, very seriously. Um, the principle of the Sabbath flows also into this third example that I want us to look at, and this is the, uh, the concept or the idea of Shemitah cycles. Shemitah cycles, and that's probably a new word to most of us. So let me explain what a Shemitah cycle is. Um, in the Old Testament, even continuing today, there are, there are practicing Jews who still try to maintain the Shemitah cycles. Uh, it is a cycle or a period of seven years in which the final year of this seven-year period is to be a Sabbath year. So we start with seven days of creation, we see that that establishes the principle of the Sabbath day. And from there, that principle of the Sabbath is extended into cycles of years in which the seventh year of the Shemitah cycle is to be a year that is set aside for glory of God, trusting in his providence, and resting from work. During the Shemitah cycle, all debts were to be forgiven of, of Jewish people, and the land that they work year after year after year in this agrarian culture is to be allowed to rest. It's to be given a year of lying fallow in which nothing is planted, nothing is harvested, and they are to depend solely on the providence of God to provide their needs. This forced people not only to depend on God, but also it forced them to, to see and, and understand simultaneously that there is freedom granted from the Egyptian bondage, and at the same time they're pointing them to this rest that would be found in Messiah. Okay, So the, the freedom from Egyptian bondage is reflected in the forgiveness of debts. Okay, and, and we, we see that, uh, that demonstrated in Deuteronomy. I want us to turn to these two passages as well. This is very important. I know there's a lot of details, and I know I'm taking you through quite a bit of Scripture reference here, but we need to get this straight in our mind if we're to understand the 70 weeks of Daniel. Looking at Deuteronomy 15, Deuteronomy 15, we see a description of this Shemitah cycle of years. Seven years, the seventh year is to be the, the year of Sabbath. Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. 
Now skipping to verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. So the, the forgiveness of debts was a reminder every seven years to the people of Israel that they had been set free from the bondage that they experienced in Egypt. Also, concerning the Sabbath land, uh, the, the rest of the Sabbath land, turn to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, we're going to begin in verse 3. We read in verse 3 of Leviticus 25, For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, this is the, the seventh year of the Shemitah cycle, in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. Okay, so this was the time that the ground was told to, they were told to let the ground lie fallow. And, and in, an, in an age that predated fertilizer and modern farming techniques, uh, this was not only a symbolic picture of the rest that they were to have in their Messiah, it was also a, a very practical thing, a very good thing to let the land regenerate itself. If you have other questions about that, see Taylor Underwood. He can talk about the, the building of soil and all of that. He can talk that, about that for a long time. So, uh, but but th this principle is a biblical principle. Uh, it, it dates back to the, the the practical nature of this. Goes back to this Shemitah cycle. Okay, so we've got creation in seven days. We've got a principle of the Sabbath day extending to the Shemitah cycles, which were seven year increments in which the seventh year was to be a year of Sabbath. All of this culminates after seven of these Shemitah cycles, if my math holds up, seven times seven is 49 years, would result in a year of Jubilee. A year of Jubilee. Okay, Leviticus 25 again, verse eight. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years sh shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So you can see in this 25th chapter of Leviticus, there's, there's further explanation of what this year of Jubilee would entail. But essentially, this was to be a year of celebration and dependence upon God. Okay, so again, creation, seven days. Sabbath principle established. The Sabbath principle extended to the Shemitah cycle. And then once we've had seven Shemitah cycles, we end up with 49 years that culminates in the 50th year being the year of Jubilee. Have we, have we got that in our, in our minds a little bit? I know there's a lot more questions to answer about this, but I want us to consider this as we look at these, uh, these 70 weeks of years that Daniel is, is prophesying about. All of this is to demonstrate God's symbolic use of the number seven. Well, turning our attention back to Daniel chapter 9, let's consider that the principle of uh, the symbolic principle of sevens which find its, its origination in creation, ultimately year, uh, yields a jubilee, a year of jubilee. All right, so let's recognize one other thing. In Scripture, the number 10 also has a very significant meaning. For, for the number 10 to be applied to something, it's, it's as in essence saying this is done to the max, to the hilt, 
okay? Um, when, when, we, when we read, um, uh, for example, uh, the, 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 the reference to a thousand, of course, a hundred is a big number, but a thousand is ten one hundreds, right? So, it, so it's taking a concept to its absolute max. And what I'd like to submit to you is these 490 years that we're going to consider in Daniel chapter 9 is actually the, the Jubilee principle of 49 years times 10. It's Jubilee to the max. And next week, we're going to look at when this, 40, this 490 years began and ended. And we're going to see that the coming of Christ is what presented us with this ultimate jubilee, the jubilee to end all jubilees, in which Jesus was the absolute fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had prophesied, all that the Old Testament had predicted. And we're going to see that this jubilee of jubilees yielded a savior for the entire world. Now, many of you are already running ahead of me right here. You're already thinking, okay, let, let me figure out when did this thing start? When did it end? Let me do the math. I, some of you probably already have your calculators out. Confession, anybody got their calculator out? Um, I, don't, don't lie. Some of, you are, some, of you are going, some of you don't need your calculators. You're smart enough to do it without calculators. But we're going to get into that, okay? I promise. I promise. We're, we're going to look at all the numbering schemes. We're going to look at the way that, uh, that different people have applied these numbers, the conclusions that they've drawn. We're, we're going to examine all of that. For right now, though, I want us to just take a step back from all of the math, all of the speculation, all of that, and just get our mind around what Daniel says will be accomplished in these 490 years. Okay, so if you look at Daniel 9.24, I, I would suggest that, that we see in that six things that are decreed to happen as a result of these 490 years. Okay, first we see that Israel would finish or complete their transgression. We see that sin would be ended. We see that there will be an atonement for iniquity and everlasting righteousness will be ushered in. Vision and prophecy will be sealed up and the most holy would be anointed. That's a lot to happen. Let's go back and read that briefly, ju just to kind of get this in our mind. Again, as I read from Daniel 9, I'm going to use ESV and other cross-references, but I'm, I'm sticking with the King James for right now in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, verse 24, uh, let me find that, yeah. So 70 weeks are decreed, again, as we established, these are weeks of years. These are 490 years total. These 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, that would be Jerusalem, and these are the six things, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy. Okay, so as we, as we work through this and as we try to understand these, uh, these six things that are going to happen, let's take them one at a time. First of all, finishing the transgression. Of course, this is, uh, this is rela related to the, the completion of the transgression of the nation of Israel. Um, years and years of disobedience on the part of Israel would be brought to completion during this time, culminating with their rejection of Christ. This would, of course, include the crucifixion, but it would also include the rejection of the prophets in the Old Testament and the rejection of the earliest gospel proclamation by the apostles. Jesus himself accuses Israel of this transgression. Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, listen to this, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Listen to verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. 
Now, I want you to remember this passage because we're going to come back here next week as we talk about the abomination of desolation. But Jesus is telling them, see, your house is left to you desolate because you are the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. Also, we see Peter condemning the Jews in one of the earliest uh, New Testament sermons. In Acts chapter 3, verse 13, Peter says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you, talking about the religious rulers, denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed, get this, the author of life. That, that screams John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ was, was not just an incarnate member of the Godhead. He was, he, but he was an eternal member of the Godhead. He was there at, 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 at the dawn of creation, and nothing was created that was not created through him. Continuing in verse 15, uh, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. This is the man that Peter and John had, had healed, uh, the, the, the crippled beggar. Verse 17 says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So throughout this, this early sermon, Peter is calling the Jews to understand that they have denied the author of, of life. They've killed the author of life, and they've denied the holy and righteous one. This would have been devastating for them to hear and for them to understand. And it was something that many of them would not hear and would not understand. But the transgression of the nation of Israel against God dating back to idolatry throughout the Old Testament, but finding its culmination in this 490-year period with the sacrifice of the one who was sent to save them. Devastating news, okay? The second thing we notice that will be accomplished in these 490 years is an end to sin. Now, this one might be a little bit difficult for us to grasp, okay? When I say that an end to sin is going to be accomplished within this 490 years, many of you are saying, how can we say that Christ put an end to sin when there is still clearly so much sin in the world, right? That's a logical question. Well, let me answer your question with another question. How can you claim to be saved when there is still so much sin in your life? Let's think about that for just a second. The fact is, in God's providence, for reasons that are incomprehensible to us, he has determined that the mortification of sin within the believer would be progressive. Our sanctification is a process. Even though we see that there's this progressive mortification of sin and this growing sanctification when we're placed into Christ, this doesn't negate the fact that when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished, that was a declaration of victory over sin for all of those who would believe. So in a very real sense, sin was killed. Sin was put to death. And we're observing that process of sin being, being mortified in our own lives and prayerfully within the culture around us at some point. Colossians 2 speaks to this. I want you to turn there. This is when I want you to put your eyes on. Colossians 2 verse 13, please. Colossians 2 13, we read, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our sins were killed at Calvary. They were nailed to the cross. This reminds us all, I'm sure, of the great uh, hymn by Charles Wesley, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. I think it's verse 4 that states, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So, I think sometimes, uh, brothers and sisters, in our understandable enthusiasm for the resurrection of Christ, we tend to move over too quickly what the death of Christ actually accomplished. And I, I, would, I would not take anything away from the resurrection. That is our hope for eternal life. However, what Jesus Christ did on that cross is really immeasurable in terms of what it provides for us in, 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 the, uh, in the area of freedom and forgiveness from sin. His death fulfilled even the very first proclamation of the gospel in the Garden of Eden. Remember when, when God is passing out these, uh, these curses to Adam, to Eve, to the serpent. He tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her, spring, her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians refer to this as the proto-evangelium. This is the proclamation of victory that God pronounced that would ultimately find its fulfillment in Christ on the cross of Calvary. Well, the next thing to be accomplished in these 490 years is connected to uh, the one that we just looked at. This is the atonement for iniquity. Connected to putting an end of sin, this, this phrase, making atonement for iniquity, is, is very, very similar. The death of Christ provides the atonement for the sins of God's elect. There, there is no other way for people to be saved. We see in John 1, verse 29, uh, the next day, this is John, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Which, which Lamb of God? The one who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 John 2, verse 2, we see that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, so in, in relation to this atonement for iniquity, it's very clear that that can be found in no one other than Jesus Christ. And once Jesus puts an end to sin, makes atonement for our iniquity, obviously that can only happen through an everlasting righteousness. We talk about this again and again and again. Um, the, the, the incarnation of Christ, the, the doctrine of Jesus, truly God, truly man, is so important to our salvation. It's so important to our understanding of what salvation is. If, if Jesus was not truly God, he would not have been qualified to offer a sacrifice for others. If he, was, if he was not truly sinless and perfect in every way, he could have never died for anyone else. He would have had to die for himself. Likewise, if he was not truly man, there was no way for him to come and offer a true blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. So this everlasting righteousness is found only in Jesus. Having kept the law perfectly, Jesus became the once-for-all sacrifice to bring in a permanent state of righteousness for those who are placed in him through conversion. Hebrews 10 speaks to this, and I know that, that John thundered away in the book of Hebrews for about eight months there, nine months, and that was a great, a great study. I, I absolutely loved our time in the book of Hebrews. I want to go back there briefly just to reinforce this idea of Christ being the source of our perfect righteousness. Hebrews 10 
Beginning in verse 1, we see, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Skipping down to verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So we see that without this this intervention into time and space by the God-man, this this slaughtering of bulls really yielded nothing more than a lot of fresh meat to be barbecued, which is a blessing and a good thing. But that that that's that's really the the extent of it, because no one was ever saved by sacrificing bulls and goats. Verse 11 of Hebrews 10 continues this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice of sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Our sanctification is dependent 100% on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which he brought with him as he came into this earth to be the the, the one sole sacrifice for sin. The one-time-for-all-time sacrifice of Jesus is completely sufficient for salvation of all who believe, and that is what we trust in. It's that righteousness that we lean on. Well, the the next thing to be brought in in the 490 years is maybe a little bit more complex, and there are multiple interpretations of this. I'm going to give you one that I find um, particularly convincing, um, and, and I think you'll see where we're going in this. This is the idea that vision and prophecy would be sealed up. Okay, and depending on how you interpret that term sealed and, and the way you work that out, this can have different interpretations. But for our purposes, I think it's safe. I'm going to take the safe bet here. It's safe for us to say that Christ's life, death, and resurrection fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. Okay, it should have been no surprise to anyone at the birth of Christ that he was here and, and he, was, uh, he was ready to offer a sacrifice for sin because it was so clear in the Old Testament. We have the benefit of the New Testament shining light on the Old Testament. So we're not going to be too hard on the people of the day that didn't recognize that. But, but still, there was a recognition um, of a coming Messiah. You have to ask yourself, uh, the, the wise men, when they saw the star, they knew to come look for the Messiah. Why were they looking for the Messiah? Why, why were they even suspecting that there would be a Messiah to be found? Right? It's because the Old Testament prophesied again and again and again um, about a coming Messiah. And we know that after Jesus' resurrection, we have the example of, of him on the road to Emmaus sharing the truth of the Old Testament about himself. This is a, a fascinating passage to me. I, I love this. It's the greatest Bible story um, that's ever been in the history of humanity. Luke 4, chapters, uh, 4, verse 16. I want us to turn there. You know I love Bible studies, love doing Bible study. Um, but what we do uh, in terms of Bible study is nothing compared to what Jesus would have done in his Bible study with these men who are walking along the road to Emmaus. Luke 4, verse 16. Wait a minute, wait a minute, sorry. I've jumped ahead in my notes. All right, hold your finger on Luke 4. Go to Luke 24. Go to Luke 24. Luke 24, beginning in verse 25. This is, this is Jesus on the road to Emmaus. 
this is after the ones that he was walking with. One of them was named Cleopas, um, unfortunate name. But the, 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 the ones he's walking with are telling him about these events that have happened. Uh, th- th- this one who was crucified. And, and they were disappointed because they were hoping this would be the one to redeem Israel. Okay, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine Jesus Christ, resurrected Lord of glory, opening the Bible to you and saying, see, right here, Exodus 4.12, you see that? That's me. You see over here, Isaiah 53, you see that? I was talking about me. I just did that. I just fulfilled that, right? Can you, I mean, we, we think of that as it would have been a joyful thing, but not everyone received the joyful news of Christ in the Old Testament with the same enthusiasm. Go back with me now to Luke 4. This is the example of Jesus early in his ministry. This is after his temptation in the wilderness, going into the synagogue, as was his custom, and and sitting down and reading from the scroll that was given to him. Beginning of verse 17, it says, this is in in their church service, if you will, in in their synagogue service, verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of the entire synagogue fell on Jesus. They were fixed on him. In verse 21, Jesus said to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay? Now, there was an extended dialogue from this point, but Jesus had just said, You know that guy that Isaiah is talking about, this Messiah that's going to do all this stuff? Well, guess what? I'm here. Right now, I'm here. This passage has been fulfilled. There was an extended dialogue, and of course, they, they wanted to kill him, right? And, and, and just as happened many times as the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, he, he very stealthily, by the power of the Spirit, somehow evaded their, their attempts to kill him because it was not yet his time. There was a specific manner in which Christ was going to be killed, and he would not allow himself to be killed any way other than that which fulfilled the, the, the Scriptures, that which sealed up vision and prophecy, as we're told about these 490 years. Well, the last thing that we're going to see accomplished in these 490 years is the anointing of the most holy. Now, uh, one of the reasons that I'm using the King James or that I have used the King James to read uh, Daniel 9 is because of this passage. A a lot of our modern translations want to identify the most holy as the most holy one or the most holy place. And that opens up a big discussion about which one of those two should be inserted. Well, as, as as a matter of just just reality, in the original, there is no direct object there. There is no place. There is no one. The, the, the simple reading is to anoint the most holy. Well, uh, in our minds, um, as, we, as we consider just the strict reading of what the Masoretic text would say, we don't have any problem acknowledging that Jesus is the most holy. 
So this 490 years would include and encapsulate the anointing of the Most Holy. There can be no other referent in this final phrase than Jesus Christ. Remember, at the death of Christ, when he said it is finished on the cross, what happened to the curtain in the temple? Ripped, top to bottom, completely ripped down to the bottom. Okay, this means that the most sacred space in all of Jewish worship, the Holy of Holies, was rendered absolutely meaningless from that point forward. Now, I don't have any doubt that they tried to sew the curtain back up, that they, they certainly tried to continue sacrifices for, for, the, for the remaining 40 years until the, until the fall of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, all of that. But, but the fact is, when the one who has re, required your sacrifices stops receiving them, your sacrifices are over. He anointed the Holy, the Holy One, the Most Holy One, Jesus. And that was the fulfillment of all of those types and shadows that we see in the Old Testament. Okay? So, we have six things that, that, are, that are indicated that we will be looking at in these 490 years. I hope that we can see from, from this, this discussion today that there, there really is no need to construct any elaborate schemes for how these things are to be fulfilled and how they were fulfilled. Um, scripture speaks directly to each one of these six uh, examples of the things that Daniel is prophesying that he's being told, uh, I should say, by Gabriel. And, and to me, it's, it, we, we can make this really, really complicated um, for, for no good reason. So next week, as we look at chap, uh, chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, we're going to continue to unpack this idea of the 70 weeks. We're going to look at some dating issues. We're going to look at some difficulties that come from this. Um, but for this week, what I'd like for us to leave here with is just this idea of the completion and the satisfaction of God with his own plan. He doesn't need us to construct other things and attach to it. Um, next week, we'll do our best to let Scripture interpret Scripture. For now, let's just go forth with an increasing confidence in the sovereign control of our great God. Remember, this God who has ended sin through Jesus Christ, this God who has, who has uh, made atonement for our iniquity, this very God who has, uh, who has sealed up the prophets in his son Jesus, in the actions, in the work, in the perfection of the work of Christ. This very same God is the one that we live for. This very same God is the one that we serve. He's the one that guides, guards, and protects us. So as we leave here, let us glorify him for his unwavering decree. He knows the end from the beginning because he declares the end from the beginning. Let us praise the one who is the Alpha and Omega, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, who is the Almighty. As Daniel 9.24 says, the most holy. Let him be the object of our worship, uh, the object of our faith, the object of our praise as we go forth today. Let us pray. God, today's, uh, today's time in your word has been very technical. It's been very, um, very deliberate in laying out um, the, the truths that are conveyed in Scripture. And God, we, uh, we do pray that you will take the truth that, you, that we've been granted and apply it to our hearts and lives. We've been short on application today, Father. We're going to leave that to the Holy Spirit to apply these truths to each of our hearts that we may live in light of the knowledge that you are God, that you are great, and that you are sovereign over all things. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.